Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 94. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special returning guest is Jonathan Esker. Following a long city career, Jonathan now manages his own money. Welcome back to the show, Jonathan. Uh, thank you. When, when was the last time that I was on? I can't remember. Well, I'm, gl- I'm glad you asked that because I had to go back and have a look on YouTube and it was the 14th of October, 2018, episode 42. God, I wonder how well that aged. So, yeah, well, so what's been happening since then? Not much, really. Like if I want to... <laughs> I think quite a lot, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> so, Jonathan, how's your lockdown? Uh, over here, I think it's uh, much the same as yours. Yeah. Which is, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm English, but I live in Ireland, and we did we did the lockdown a bit earlier than you, and I think we followed the the protocol that we've been told we're supposed to do. But sadly, it seems our, our statistics are no much, not much different than yours, actually. So we have the same kind of uh, mortality statistics. Nursing homes seem to be completely rampantly infected with the fucking thing. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a fantastic time for data monkeys, though, because you can go yeah. around cherry picking cherry picking whatever political view you have of how this should have been treated with whichever countries happen to suit your picture. And I think it's very, I think the best, best letter I've seen on this is a guy from Greenhaven, uh, an American fund. And he said, if you're really honest with yourself, it's really fucking confusing. There's so many variables. Of course. It anyone depends who too, you listen to. And, and, yeah. And anyone who's too confident and it happens to map with their prior political leanings, I think it's just unlikely they're right. Or they're, they're unlikely they're thinking critically. You know what I mean? Did you happen to see before it was removed from YouTube the uh, the presentation by Dr. Erickson in California? Uh, no, I didn't. Did you see it, Paul? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I did see it, and um, and I had a so look. Do you, at- do you want to do you want to give a praise of it for, for for Jonathan's benefit and for also for anyone that hasn't seen it because it's been yanked now. It's been deemed to be a victim of political correctness. I think you'll do a better job of it, Tim, if I'm quite honest with you. So my so my take on this, so this is a basically was, I think, a roughly an hour-long presentation by two emergency doctors in California. And, long, and it's been pulled from YouTube because apparently saying something that either had, that disagrees with either prior UN policy or current UN policy or what might conceivably ever be UN health policy puts you in breach of their community guidelines, which is basically oh, any, anything on I Earth. did see that. Yeah. They, were, they were two actual doctors yeah. dealing with coronavirus patients. And, well, yeah, I mean, but they're just talking from personal hands-on experience of what they're actually seeing, yeah. Yeah. which I think is uh, quite, I mean, they know a lot more than you and I do, right? Yeah, so for the, benefit, I mean, for the benefit of anybody that hasn't seen it, and I dare say there are still isolated bits of the web where you can still still access the, the presentation, I found it as a layman. I found their argument fairly convincing. But basically what they were saying is, long story short, is lots and lots of cases, very few deaths. And they, they made that point several times. Lots and lots of cases, very few deaths. And one of the statistics that they cited was something along the lines of the fatality rate they, I think they estimate for either for California or for the you know, for the whole country, for the whole United States, is something of the order of 0.03%. In other words, you have a 0.03% probability of getting, of dying of coronavirus. Yeah. And if that's, and if that's true, you know, plus or minus, obviously given a margin of error, does that necessitate basically destroying the economy? Taleb, answers on a postcard. Taleb has pushed back against this. He said that yeah. the what their their comparison with Sweden is 
it, uh, sorry, Sweden's uh, comparison with with Norway and, and Finland and Denmark is their numbers were much worse. So mm. whilst they weren't doubling every three days or whatever we feared, um, they still were comparatively much much worse. But I think to counter that, their point was that it's not they're not just looking at one statistic; they're looking at mm-hmm. how it's affecting other people and. The the second order effect of of lockdown is that you have distress and anxiety and in in other areas as well. So you know it's it's all it, it you can't just focus on one number. You've got to focus on the damage that's being done broadly. But having said that, they're not they they're not there to assess risk. They are just there in a way that uh, they're just on the front line. And I think giving their opinion about what they were seeing was one thing. Perhaps. Yeah. Sort of bring it in, bring it into statistics. They were a little bit on dodgier ground in that re- regard. Mm. But um, this is this is this is Jonathan's point that it's it's basically a a complete data festival for the data geeks. Absolutely right, absolutely right. I don't know who to believe. I really don't. Okay, can I um can I challenge can I challenge Tal? I mean, I'm a jilted lover because I think as anyone who's followed Tal for a long time, you, you're probably going to get blocked because if you disagree with anything he says, you're blocked, and he calls that improving his uh his filter, but I call it an echo chamber. <laughs> and so he's, he's blocked me a long time Fil- ago. Filter management. Like really? That. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, yeah. Sure. But if you, he's in block, like some of my former colleagues worked with Nassim Taleb when he was an options trader years ago. So any, any options traders very familiar to his lab. I mean, he, he does, to be fair to Taleb, he has put it in words and lectures and reached a lot of people, different concepts and reworded it like things like anti-fragile and black swan. And they're all parts of the lexicon now. And that is great. But he, he does have many blind spots, I would say, and who am I? But he, for example, he will get very excited with his Joe Norman, another one of his fanboys, about what an exponential function is. And this is a multiplicative issue, and it's not like a normal. So we're going to spend any, any sums of money to try to contain this virus, which mostly kills, sadly, 80-plus-year-old people who may well have died within a year anyway, as, as awful as that is. But what he does not take into account, which is this, his own logic against him, is there are also multiplicative effects of the financial costs we're bearing. Like someone yesterday put the trillions of dollars that are going to be spent and they unfairly attributed it all to millennials and said, mm. to each millennial, this is $85,000 of debt. I mean, if you said to every millennial, $85,000 of debt, or even, even half it for this mm. lockdown, I mean, it's, it's, going to co- it's going to cause very probably all the issues you mentioned. Plus, I think University College London said this week, uh, more people will die of cancer than would have otherwise died in the next five years, than all the COVID deaths we're going to get this year. Uh, and I, th- I don't think anyone's looking at the costs on the other side of this. I, mean, well, I, it's, think, it's a- I think, to be fair, plenty of people are. It's just that, you know, that there's no consensus. Um, right. And this is, this is just like, I mean, the thing that I've, I've I, I found is that I, I now feel, uh, sort of Paul's point just now, I, I feel as confused by the doctors and the medical people as I do about economists. So I used to think that economists were in a special, that deserved their own special level of hell uh, for being sort of pointless, contradictory, you know, uh, offensively uh, pompous, arrogant, etc. And now it appears that everyone else in the whole realm of science is exactly the same, seemingly. But to, to, the, to the point about cost, I just want to cite an anecdotal example. This is Luke Johnson on Twitter saying, this is, this is yesterday, this week the CFO of a wholesale business I know started, and this is obviously someone who, who specializes in the restaurant business, the, the CFO of a wholesale business I know started with notifications of 16 separate insolvencies among 
hospitality customers. The industry is falling apart. None of those companies are coming back. Not creative destruction, just destruction. And this morning, yeah. the FTSE went over 6,000. So um, how do you see this from a financial point of view, Jonathan? What, what, uh, you're an Austrian school uh, economist yourself. And have you yeah. made any amendments to your, your strategy over the last few, few months? Yeah, I think a lot of the Austrians, they tend to focus on the, the first the first exposure to Austrian stuff is you read the books and you worry about money supply. And sorry, to, sorry to, to cut in, Jonathan, for the benefit of people who aren't familiar with the terminology, do, would you like to give your version, your brief version, definition of what an Austrian economist is or what they believe? Yeah. So at university, we're taught, I went to a top UK university did economics. So I did the normal stuff. You learn roughly speaking about the Keynesians or Chicago economists. So either you if you believe in central government doing anything at all, then you're either going to be some combination of fiddling with the fiscal policy or you're fiddling around with the monetary policy to try to smooth the path of the economic cycles. That's super crude. But something we're not taught about, which I only discovered by accident when I was living in Japan, wondering why neither of those seemed to have worked over there, was the so-called Austrian school, which I would just say is classical liberal economics, where they wonder broadly what, why, if we don't believe in price fixing works, should we have a room full of well-meaning, highly intelligent academic men and women decide what interest rates should be? I mean, how can they know, even if they mean well? And then when you complicate that by saying they're also politically elected by democratically elected leaders who win votes by promising goodies they may not be able to afford, you're going to have a bias towards selecting for economists in those chairs that happen to give you what you want, which is low rates, easy money. I mean, this is very sim simplified. And then you can see it happening real time now where MMT, which is even more ridiculous, uh, would never have got uh, airtime in normal economic conditions. And now you have the FT interviewing the, the worthies in that area. And you can see those people slowly probably working their way up to the top table and, and, and effect and end up probably being in 10 years time chairing the Fed, where they really manipulate the money supply and money variables to try to keep things as smooth as possible. And first level thinking, that seems reasonable, but it does cause real economic consequences. And the longer you keep on doing this, you keep masking how the economy should recover. So I, uh, let's pick Ireland, for example. Ireland is, when I happen to live here, I didn't, it's not, I'm not making any sales pitch, but they had, because they're a small country in the edge of Europe, like German interest rates, in a country that should really have had UK plus interest rates. It's a small, young, demographic, very fast-growing country that had ridiculously low interest rates. So that, that, had that. so that gave rise to a property boom? A massive property boom. Like when I arrived in 2006, they were, they were advertising tiny houses in decent suburbs for, for millions, like more than a Mayfair house. And you just, as an English person, I mean, I just, my Mayfair's expensive, as you know, but that, that's just ridiculous. And so then we had this crash, and they had an epic crash here. So because Ireland's only a small economy compared to Europe, they really couldn't use monetary or fiscal policy here like they would normally want to do. So you almost had, I would say, like a, a mini Austrian test. They had massive monetary contraction in Ireland and massive fiscal contraction. And I mean actual austerity, not just a slower rate of increase as you've had in the UK. And so you did see horrible two or three years, and house prices fell 70 75%. But the economy recovered very fast. And it's funny, I think, that you'd see very little press coverage of countries like Ireland where 
what, what, what happened in practice was not what anyone has recommended in theory. And it did sort itself out. I mean, it's just a, I think the same thing happens to me in European countries too, where they recovered very hard despite horrible monetary and fiscal contraction. So effectively, you effectively, the free, effectively the free market was, was able to function and do its job. Yeah, because most assets are, are not are not in, um, owned by people with enormous leverage. So people people who are sensibly um, geared can ride through it and survive. And sure, the marginal cases will be screwed, but the assets just shift ownership and they go to stronger hands, and things things sort themselves out. So the excesses of property happened here. So it happened to correct very quickly. Whereas in the UK, as you know, they didn't. So you still have this issue where your houses are unbelievably expensive in London. And I think you're, I think you're, you're going to have a, a different set of outcomes than we will over here. Just, I mean, it wasn't because local people are geniuses or the UK people are idiots. It's just because they were they, over here. They weren't really in charge of their own destiny because of the ECB and the euro and the, the various conditions of the bailouts. Mm. To your point, there's an excellent essay um, that I, I came across just just before we, we we started recording by David Starkey in the Critic, and we can put a link to the the piece in the uh, in the show notes. And basically, that you'll probably get you probably get the gist of it just from the headline, or the, the the title, which is Capitalism One, Big Government Zero. So the the the, the essential point he makes is that if you take you know, the, the the market, the free market functioning. And then you look at basically experience of the food sector and the supermarkets, which after a jittery start, got their act together and are now basically almost seem to be more or less back to normal, you know, amazingly, give or take. Whereas you look at basically how the NHS has performed and more specifically, perhaps Public Health England, and it's been a complete shit show. Well, I can give you some, I mean, there's not top secret information, I'm sure you'll know, but it, various family members work in, in the, in the uh, NHS and it's almost like a religious position that they, they try to solve the problems of the shortage of supply of various items by anything but the private market solutions. Mm. They were being offered help by various industries and they refused because mm. they could try to, they want to sort it out by their own channels. It's almost like they look at anything that has a profit motive with suspicion, even if it solves the problem they're trying to address. Mm. Anyway, I mean, but, but to, to, your, to your point, Paul, I think the conclusion of all that ramble was I became the first level Austrians, then they become very suspicious of the money system because you, half of every transaction is money. So if money itself is compromised, you know, I, I went down the whole gold you know, rabbit hole and I, I still think those guys have extremely valid points. I just worry that that could take decades to unravel. I think it is. In fact, there's a, there's a great 1980 YouTube video I strongly recommend anyone who listens to this watches if they, they're starting to get too excited about gold. It's from a guy called um, Doug Casey. And he wrote a book back then. It was a number one best-selling book in the whole United States. And he's on the O'Donoghue show, a famous talk show, like, I guess, the Graham Norton show, but for, for, for normal people. And he was, if you listen to what he said, all the stuff he said today would be applicable now. And that was 1980. And I think that the journey to ruin can be, I'm not saying we're going to end up in ruin, but it, it can take decades. And there's a guy called Francisco Garcia Paramos, who, like he's called the Spanish Warren Buffett, although he's had a tricky couple of years. And he said to me, when we were in Gardeval a few years ago, at one of Tony Deedon's conferences, the problem with that, he's an Austrian and he's a gold guy and he's a value investor. And he said, the thing is, he's Spanish. And he said, I'm Spanish and we're very close to Portugal. And both our countries have had real socialism. Many of our former colonists have had genuine currency collapses, hyperinflations, real dictators. <clears throat> and he said, and no, none of the people in those countries ever timed gold well. The most reliable thing to do, in his view, is to buy equities, globally diversified, sensible balance sheets, and hold them. 
and, and it will be volatile, just like gold. And equities themselves represent many of the qualities that gold bugs claim as some unique property of gold. Like they're scarce, they represent real assets, the Fed can't print them, they're, you know, they, they're also productive, which is something gold isn't. Which having, I find, having said that, the Fed could start buying stocks. Well, yeah. And as you know, as you know, Tim, in Japan, they're saying that um, I read a piece that you prompted me to look at talking about four or five percent of the Japanese stock market is disappearing year after year because of the BOJ buybacks. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we get excited in America because uh, the Fed is doing, is doing MBS programs. I mean, I think it's only a matter of time before the Fed has an S&P buying program. I mean, if the S&P goes below 2000, I'm pretty sure Donald Trump will invent a program to buy a few hundred billion S&P futures. Well, the, Fed, no the, Fed will just, the Fed will just orchestrate a friendly takeover of BlackRock. <laughs> yeah. Well, why, why don't they just say, this is the price that the S&P will be at the end of the year. Let's uh, stop the games. Let's stop fiddling with the numbers. Let's say we mandate 4,000 S&P by December 31st. That's what it, and next year, 5,000. And year after year, let's stop the game. So this is a free market outcome. This is something I tweeted this morning. So welcome your comments on this one. Um, this is from, from a piece from the Financial Times. Man Group's tail protect fund also lost money for five consecutive years to 2020. But just as it was starting to make money from the coronavirus crisis, it was shut down as investors pulled out their cash. <laughs> <laughs> is that really? Yeah, it's a piece. It's a piece basically about about, about tail risk. So there's a full a full page article about tail risk in, in the middle of today's FT, and that's that's where that little baby uh, leapt out at me from. And I just think that says so much about our the you know the the mad 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 world of investing. So, Jonathan, just think, read, oh, sorry. Do you want to read it again? Some, Should I read it again? No, no. Well, you go on. No, no, it's fine. Because something Tim and I, I think, maybe agree on is, of all the non-conventional strategies, I think the one I like the most easily is, is a so-called trend following, which is man is more of an institutional mm. version of that. Yeah. But if you, you, you look at Nassim Taleb, and his, his, his version would be buying out-of-the-money options, so you bleed money every year because you're paying away these premiums. And in years like this, they'll jump up and down and do high fives because they, they make a lot of money. And the same in 2008. But that's mm. by definition how they work. The problem with that strategy is you're losing money mostly year after year after year. And then you occasionally get these big wins. And there's no logic that says the winning years will offset all the losing years. And I think, to be fair, Mark Spitznagel is a different animal and he, he has done very well. But nearly all those tail funds have been shocking. And then... You think, well, okay, well, what kind of tail strategies do work? And I think trend following is the only one I've come across where it does. So it's very volatile, but there's no, you're not paying away premium every year. But the problem is, as Tim mentioned there, your returns can be very uncomfortable. So you make no money when the market's doing well. It can be that way. Then this year, they've had a blinding start, but mm. they weren't losing money for the last few years. So they're they just doing average compared to stocks. Mm. And in fact, very few people have the fortitude to stick with it, sadly. But it's not just that; it's also the fact that there's a, there's a, there's a huge bias against them because for those that stay in the form and the structure of traditional hedge funds, they can't be marketed to retail investors anyway. The regulator won't allow it. Yeah, and the ETF versions are very shallow versions of the real thing because they have all their stupid arbitrary rules about what they can and can't do, and short and ind industry allocations and so on. So the the old-fashioned turtle trader model of trend following. Is not you can't apply it in a retail friendly model. So, like you say, it's not marketable anyway. So, how how have you tweaked your portfolio in the light of gold going up? Are you thinking maybe you should move some into equities, or will you slightly underweight gold compared to equities? 
So I would say 85% would be in long and long short value funds. And then 15% will be in the, the trend following funds, but the very old fashioned non-retail friendly type versions that mm. there are there are out there. And of the to your point about gold, I would say that gold to me is a, a residual of equity risk you don't want to take, as opposed to an active call on gold being something I want to go up. Like I don't know. And I don't I don't know anyone who has a model that's been remotely reliable about timing gold. Like I was on the board of Edelweiss Holdings, which is Tony Deaton's um company for many years. And I met a lot of wonderful people. I learned many things. But I also saw every single gold model that people got excited about, kind of refuted by experience. It doesn't mean I don't anything wrong with gold or the guys that like gold. I just think that timing it's is getting completely pointless. It's like timing the stock market. Look at look at this year. I mean who would have guessed the S P would be up 30% last year? I don't think anyone forecast that. Then the, the, the pandemic, fair enough, that's hard to forecast. Then the market reaction down and up has been incredible. Mm-hmm. And I think it made a, made a fool of anybody wondering about short-term movement. So gold to me is more what you own when you don't know what to do in equities or other strategies. So for me, it has gone up quite a bit in that sense. But I, something Tim and I talked about a week or two ago is when you read, when you have the flexibility we do of looking anywhere in the world, because I'm only investing myself really, so I don't have to worry about keeping any regulators happy. If you read the letters from people like Terry Smith, highly respectable fund manager in the UK, um, who likes to hate on value investing, but put that aside for a second. You can find companies with the same quality, quality as Terry Smith talks about in Asia and Japan, in the, especially in the small cap space. So very high quality, high return on capital, high return on equity, but they also have deep value uh, valuations right now. So you're getting the best of, well, arguably the best of both worlds, where you're getting the high quality compounders that Terry Smith likes, but you're also getting them at very attractive valuations. Just, 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 are- just, just to put some meat on the bone there for anyone that's interested, when Jonathan refers to you know deep value valuations, some of these companies with exactly the characteristics that you just mentioned are trading on PEs of three and four right now. Yeah, and normally when you see that, people will say, well, it's, it's cheap for a reason. Yeah, or, or maybe it's, um, and I respect the deep, deep value guys because a lot of the world's businesses are cyclical, like shipping. It's a cyclical industry. And some people equate that with it being poor quality, which is not the same thing. Although shipping companies may have a bad reputation for poor capital allocation, greedy Norwegian and Greek billionaires, for fair enough. But a lot of the world, the businesses are cyclical and they will always be cyclical. Fair enough, there's lots of technology coming down the pipelines, but you're never going to have a shipping SaaS stock. It doesn't make sense unless it's supporting shipping technology. So that the world needs investors in those spaces and it will be volatile. But the problems are very hairy. So they're highly cyclical. But you don't need now to get exposure to, to that kind of valuation in cyclical stocks. You can buy it, you can get it in very sensible companies in Asia. And people I don't think understand. Like I was looking at a report on Bangladesh recently. I'm not invested over there, but I, th- I don't think people have any clue about the size of populations in places like Bangladesh or Indonesia. Enormous populations that Together, dwarf um, Europe and America. And, and our news is so focused over here. I think we forget how much is going on in the rest of the world. We really are blind to it. And the, the West treatment of COVID has just accelerated trends. For example, one of the obvious trends that has happened is we've just taken a massive step forward in debt for an arguably indifferent outcome in treating the pandemic compared to Asia, which broadly speaking has done much better in treating the pandemic. And they have not financially shot themselves in the face. So they've just taken a quantum leap forward. So macro, they look relatively better than us. 
and they now have the better valuations. And very few people over here talk about it. I don't, don't know why. To the topic of debt, which is a topic that's probably close to all of our hearts, if not necessarily close to any of our portfolios, um, how do you see that this, this uh, let's, let, let's split the world in two. So let's look at, let's say, the developed Western economies, uh, which are all effectively now bankrupt, at least at a sort of governmental level. How do you see that playing out? I mean, what, what, what do you think is, I mean, there's never an end game because there's always more iterations of the game. But what do you think of the ne- is, is plausibly going to happen over the course of, let's say, the next you know, year, two years or so? So I remember talking to Dylan Grice a couple of years ago about this. And one thing I think may handicap the Austrian types is they read, if you read Mises, he talks about the crack up boom. Mm. So I think, I just think that the problem is that doesn't have to happen. You may not get a sudden a moment, like a, a Weimar moment. Like a, Min- a Minsky moment. Yeah, it, it, that, that may happen. And in which case it's, the, it's a forced reset. And, and I think predicting that's like predicting which grain of sand will be the one that, is, that makes the whole thing fall over. And I don't yeah. think you can do that. I think much more likely might be a and Dylan said this to me more of a Latin American, a Latin American outcome where you have. This sounds very arrogant, and I don't mean to sound this way, but you look at Buenos. Was it Buenos Aires? Is one of the richest cities in the world a hundred years ago, and it's just had serial, shocking economic policies for a hundred years. And it's managed, like Adam Smith said, there's a great deal of ruin on a nation. So if you start rich, you can make poor choices for a long time, eroding your capital over decades. So I wonder, and they have this gradual decline, but they never admit it to themselves. They always blame somebody else. They still walk around with their chest high, head held, you know, chin forward, looking at the world, blaming everybody else. But meanwhile, the rest of the world just carries on. And I had this horrible feeling that in 30, 40 years, a bit longer than your one or two years, Tim, mm. Asia would just be streets ahead of us. And we'll still be walking around pointing at our wonderful buildings and a bit of our culture. And, you know, but meanwhile, the rest of the world goes, yeah, but you know, look, look at your ridiculous policies and look at the way the French are trying to ask their people in very sensible language about your retirement policies are just not fundable. We're trying to ask you to move the needle a little bit and have these riots, endless complaining and whinging. And you're thinking, well, if you want to be educated till you're 25 years old, work for 20, 25 years, stop and full benefits the next 30, 40 years. It's just the math doesn't work, but I don't think it'll happen quickly. I think it'll be a slow relative decline, sadly. Mm. Unless we manage to trigger a hot war with China, which I know really that was going to be my next not. question. That was going to be my next question. I mean, I don't know if you heard Kyle Bass on this. Yeah. But I, was, I was listening to a, a little presentation or an interview he gave about a week or two weeks ago, and he said basically, you know, let's let's not let's not be delusional about this. In three out of four ways, we're at war with China anyway. I mean, he's talking specifically about the states, but I think we're all in this kind of together. So I'm trying to think of the categories, but one of them was like in terms of information or narrative. I think was the phrase he used. Uh, but basically, there's all kinds of intellectual property theft going on, and that's been taking place for years. There's effectively a trade war going on that's taken place for years. There's um, sort of, well, I mean, there are other characteristics. I mean, there's like military buildup, but that clearly hasn't escalated to a hot war yet. But there's, you know, there's a basically in, in, in every facet except the, the exchange of, of, of arms, you know, we're at war with China anyway. So it's almost like, you know, what different, what, what you know, what difference would, was sort of a sort of a, a formal acknowledgement of, you know, of hostilities, to, you know, what difference would that make now? And that would be my biggest concern that at some point you know, this this powder keg is actually going to ignite. Because, you know, let's not pretend that, you know, the rest of the world ex-China is just, you know, beaming and, and, and skipping to work in the morning uh, with surrounded by rainbows of sweetness and light at the fact that we've all been, you know, vested with this this plague 
that came out of China that, you know, whatever the precise origin started, we have to assume in Wuhan. Um, and the Chinese authorities didn't exactly win any sort of diplomacy or charm offensive by lying about it, suppressing the information, locking down domestic travel, but allowing international travel from the area affected. I mean, it's it's all but, uh, you know, a declaration of war, at least the aftermath has been to date. You know, if China had gone to war, they couldn't have affected a, a better outcome than basically destroying the Western economies. I have a bit of a funny theory that you can laugh at me about. And it starts off with Hitler, which you, whenever you, someone does that, you think they've lost the argument because anything, mm. you start there, you're in trouble. But see, look, look back then, and then the, the tolerance towards minorities was outrage, outrageous. So it was gone way too far in one direction. And uh, I don't, I've never met anyone in my life who disagrees disagree with that, so we don't have to go there. But then now you have, let's say, the liberal elite looking for any minority group that they can think of or create out of nothing. And it becomes a page one New York Times cause. And you can think of all the political correct things, the sorts of things that Titiana McGraw on Twitter parodies. But they're all, they're all weak attacks on, uh, and they're, they're, they're very weak attacks on things that aren't that significant compared to China. Like Trump, you can say we, we don't have to debate whether Trump's a lovely man or not, and all, but, but he has raised consciousness with the trade war. There are things China's been doing to us for years that are just not acceptable, mm. and they're a real issue. So we, we're happy to fight things where you have no real risk of getting in trouble, like complaining about the quotas on various boards. It's like, okay, whatever. But then meanwhile, what the Chinese are doing to their Muslim population in these re-education camps, I mean, if you read some of the articles, yeah. it's incredible. Like it, that, that really is. Also, what I'm saying is you have an elite that goes around virtue signaling, they're basically making a lot of noise about how upset they're about some mar marginal issue where they face no blowback at all. Mm. Well, but where, where there are real issues that need to be dealt with, like the way the Chinese are treating uh, a, a Muslim indigenous community in re-education camps where Chinese men are sent in to be with the Muslim women when the Chinese men are forced to go out to be retrained during the day. I mean, if you read about it, it's it's incredible. Like it really is uh, like World War II. Mm. Um, and it's not on television. I, I rarely see it on the BBC. But then if there's a, you know, some Christian baking a cake or not baking a cake, that, that is page one news for weeks. Mm. And you do think there's a certain sort of willingness to pick fights that are easy as over the ones that are actually real. And the longer you are quiet about the real issues, like some of the issues in China, I think the, you're, not, you're not dealing with it. It's a bit like monetary policy. You're not dealing with the problem, but, but it's there and it's going to keep coming. And there's, it'll keep a, rising. There's, a, there's a cracking epitome of the, this virtue signaling in the Amnesty International uh, campaign lately that, has, that basically says that calling it a Chinese virus is racist. Yes. Yeah, I think. Well, didn't the, 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 the WHO say that at the beginning? They said it's more, it's more harm will be caused by calling it a Chinese virus than the virus itself. I think part, the 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 part, of the problem with, part of the problem with that is that there are some people who literally think that it's Chinese, just Chinese people who pass it on, as opposed to it originated in China. You know, sales of Corona beer in America plummeted because people think you can get it from the beer. I mean, it's like. You know, there are yeah. there are stupid people out there. You know, people aren't going to Chinese restaurants because they think they're going to get the virus. You know, so yes. you, you've got but to take to be, it. To be fair, there may be some scintilla of justification for that if that restaurant employs people who've recently come over from China. So well, there there is that, but it do, that doesn't. Make, but what if you're what if you're a Chinese American who's not got any relation 
to anybody in China. You just happen to be, you know, you were born in America, but you come from a different heritage, and you're being yeah. discriminated against because sure. of, because yeah. of it. And it, that's that's where you've got to be careful about calling it a Chinese virus. I, I think. Um, but the, I mean, there's the, the, WHO, the, the WHO. I strongly agree. So, so just to be clear, like you can you can agree with both points of view. Like you can. So what you're saying is obviously true, Paul. Like that that's that's not right either. But it's, it's, I think, the, you need, the greater harm in this case clearly is the flipping virus. Like, of course, you have to deal with the virus. Yes. What you call it is very, very secondary. It's like the whole transgender stuff. Like, it's a, it's a thing. It's real. I'm not saying it's not a real deal. But it, honestly, if you're going to devote front page coverage to issues that need help in the world, that is surely a page 10 story versus what's happening in China and all kinds of issues you can think of. Well, for example, the World, was it the world Food oh, not the world, the world's world, um, Bank said today that there's 30 million people may die. I mean, of course, they're exaggerating. They're a charity and they need to get more money for because of coronavirus. And you think that that is, there are real problems that, are, that need the, the, the front page coverage, not whether Dominic Cummings was influential. In the, I mean, that is not really as relevant as dealing with the, 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 the major harms. You don't seem to risk weight, the actual harms versus what's an easy thing to deal with, where you're not going to get any pushback from your readers. Do, do you think communism in China needs to end? Is that like, is this the Chernobyl moment for the the equivalent of the USSR? I definitely don't think so, because it, in the USSR they just couldn't keep the game going. They were they were they were failing, so they they, were, they their system was economically imploding. Whereas in China, that's just that's not the case. That's a very good point. But would you like it to end? I would like. So I heard a very good comment from some historian saying, oh, "I get my dates wrong and embarrass myself," but something like 1890, someone said. If in the 1890s someone said Germany, in 60 years, uh, you know, Prussia, whatever, whatever it's called mm. back then, in 60 years there'll be this thing called Germany. It'll be a wonderful, prosperous nation and very productive and it'll be on it. But, but you know what? It's going to be a bumpy ride. <laughs> we can laugh. Because, <laughs> yeah, it'll get there. And I think China, I think, I think China will get there, but fucking hell, it's not going to be smooth. I mean, that's the problem. It reminds me of a, there's a line in Aliens, which is one of my favorite films, and they're talking about what went wrong on the original Nostromo, and uh, the, the the guy from the company just says, "Well, there was an accident, and you know, a few deaths were involved." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I had a tweet this morning: which entity is having the worst coronavirus crisis? And the options I provided were the WHO, the blamestream media, the police, and the EU. And, you know, you're free to choose any or all of those. Which, which entity or entities or people are having a good crisis, as far as you're concerned, if anybody is? Well, I was just reading, uh, well, this, I don't want to make about financial markets again, but that's a bit mm. tedious. There's a company I'm, I know about called Vostok New Ventures, mm. which is a Swedish company. And they, one of their largest holdings is this thing called Babylon, Babylon Healthcare. Um, and it's this whole online doctor type thing. And I just think some of these tech companies have had a, like, I think it's been very good for the metaverse. Mm. The metaverse is, a, I think it's a geek's way of saying everything technology. Like even grandparents have had to learn what Zoom is. Yeah. So they, and the, the, the doctors don't want to use technology because they want to use the face-to-face. They're now forced to use these uh, software platforms where they can now, this thing, it records your face, records your patient's face. It has all the data on one side. And then as you talk about your, that the patient gives you their story about what their problems are. The doctor's doing his normal doctoring, but the machine is listening to you, looking at the person, looking at their history, looking at the statistics, comparing the doctor's recommendations with the person's um, prescriptions, and then just working out what is statistically likely. 
Wow. And you're thinking, I mean, that's science it's all fiction, quite, isn't it? Well, it's coming, man. It's, I mean, it's, yeah. it's really happening. It's like out of Star Trek by the sound of it. But the problem is, you know, the pattern. So first off, NHS is now the NHS have tried, they've signed on a Wolverhampton or somewhere else beginning with a W in the UK. So they're practicing it in an entire town in the UK. And of course, all the doctors are whinging and pushing back because all the established order is going to be challenged by a new thing, is going to complain. Yeah. And of course, as with Tesla, every single road death on a Tesla on autopilot is a page one story. But you don't get page one stories anymore about a Volvo in a crash today or a Range Rover or a BMW, but that's happening all the time. No one talks about it. And I think there's going to be, there's going to be an unrealistic expectation for what these things have to do, but it's, it's happening and it's just taken a huge step forward. So that's a winner, but I don't think you'll put, I know you want to be saying nasty at the EU, but I don't know. No, no, I, no. I think that'll last. I think that's going to keep on going for ages. I think it'll slide a lot. It'll die eventually, but a long, slow death. I mean, I worry with the EU when the Germans wake up and say, hang on a second. Why we why we keep copying it? Why the strong northern European countries keep getting told, well, it's your fault for the euro. I mean, you you have a, a currency, you're overly productive, you save too much. You need someone more like us. You need to be more Italian. <laughs> yeah, just spend like, it. It's not spend fair. It. Yeah. yeah. I had a I had a had a great line from Sean Corrigan. It may have been at one of the uh, sort of Gardaval type conferences with uh, with Edelweiss over the years. It was something along the lines of, "This is just the course of history that everyone everyone in Europe gets unhappy, and the Germans end up paying for it." <laughs> <laughs> well. Uh, well, I'll give, you, I'll give you a thought experiment that's always going to upset somebody because I did economics. I get the rough story that, yeah, Germany's an exporting nation and they're very productive. But I mean, they now have the euro. They've had the same euro that the Italians or the Greeks or pick it, whatever country you like have had for now decades. So this time, surely prices of labor and contracts and that have all kind of normalized to the euro. But somehow the Germans still manage to keep going. And you go, well, mm-hmm. that's not fair to Jonathan. They give you all these special stories and say, well, imagine in a separate universe we'd had another country in the middle of Europe, that had a Germanic culture, that did not have the euro, had its own currency. Are you saying they would have been screwed? And let's say this place is called Switzerland. Yeah. <laughs> and then you said, they go, oh, well, uh, mm, yeah, well, they've had a very strong currency and somehow they've done really well as well. It's like, yeah, I don't think it matters if they had the euro, the Deutschmark, the Swiss franc, they would, just, they would just prevail. That's just the way it is. And I think making excuses saying, well, if they didn't have the euro, if they weren't so productive, they didn't save so much. Like, well, yeah, I mean, but those things are all outcomes of the way they are. They're not just givens of nature that we take away from them and then it'll equalize them down to Spanish levels of productivity. They, they would have, like, do you remember the Eastern German thing? I was at university when we were being taught how the East German unification was a joke and it would cost the Germans a, a fortune and romantic. And now we don't even think about it. It's a, it's a speed bump. My God, that was, what a mic drop moment. That was indeed, I, yeah. <laughs> So, you just fell asleep. But no, no. I was just, I was just thinking that that on that point, they, uh, the the problem with the European Union and the way it's working, is that they they are building up constant problems. Now, the fact that they're able to sort of deal with them in the background doesn't mean that that these disparities between the the richer nations and the poorer nations are not widening. And it's just the ECB are trying to do everything they can to help the weakest link in the chain. But at some point, that's either going to be massively inflationary or the, the system will rip apart. But there's no reason for, at, at this point for them to do that. But going back 20 years and, and seeing how the currencies were all put together back then and the absolute mess and chaos in the in the currency markets as, as the, you know, the peseta and the, 
the, um, the French franc and the Italian lira were all collapsing against the Deutschmark. And, but then suddenly all this volatility went to zero as they, they clamped down on it and then sort of concreted, concreted over the volatility and shoved it all into the euro. That's one of the predictions, like you said earlier, was that you know that it's eventually it's going to die, but you just don't know when it's going to happen. I didn't think it would last 20 years. I've thought every big crisis that's come along would be the end of it. The Greek crisis, the, you know, the, the, the Italian elections. And recently I thought, well, that, that could be the end of it. And it's not seemed to be. So you could almost make the point, Paul, that actually the EU has lasted or the euro and the EU has lasted as long as it has precisely because it's only crisis that enable it to actually change at all. Yeah, that that that's true. Actually, and one of the one of the biggest sort of flashpoints I thought would could be Ireland because going back to how you know we were talking to Eddie Hobbs about this, and I I remember in two thousand uh, giving a seminar, and this is going to link into something that Tim's going to talk about later. But um, there was the first million per pound winner on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and I was giving a seminar that evening and of course they were televising it so there were lots of people there but not quite as many so I remember it really well but I was being shown around Dublin and shown shacks that were going for a million euros back then when a million euros was a lot of money and I say flippantly this is in 2000 a million euros for a shack in Ireland and I was thinking that's what happens when you've got interest rates at 7% and you just push them down to 3% and give give a ton of money from the European Union and grants and everything else and you've got a favorable tax system you know what on earth are you doing you're supercharging and and uh, nitrous oxide injecting this economy what the hell do you think's going to happen it's going to it's going to break out into into asset prices and and then of course you're just going to get a big bust that follows it because it's just unsustainable so I got a I got a question for you I got a question for you lads on exactly this issue. So so I went to normal UK university, did all the economic stuff and did econometric modelling and all that kind of nonsense you you have to do. So it it all quite involved. Then kind of by accident I discovered this Austrian stuff and I read Ludwig von Mises and Mario Bothbard and Hayek and some Friedman and all the rest of it. And then you end up coming around to the position that actually maybe old fashioned economics like common sense stuff was right all along. Like it's really basic, but it's just correct. And I don't understand why it's such a hard sell to tell people that that is, because it's much more intuitively plausible. That the, the thing you're saying there about, you know, if you, if you have rates too low for too long, you're going to have less, less saving, too much borrowing. You turbocharge things more than it should have been. So why is it so hard to convince the general population that this is, this is a plausible alternative version of economics? Because you, you never hear about it. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I think, to answer it in a slightly different way, I would say I remember from our last podcast what you was what you were saying about, you know, what you're trying to do is like what we're doing is we're looking at the flaws in the system and going, oh my god, why aren't these flaws being expressed in the markets? Why can't you 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 can look at the flaws, but the market just carries on, and in the end, it's not what you think should happen; it's what's actually happening. And and yes. whilst it was whilst it was like you're thinking this is this is crazy you know this is like this is this whole thing is absolutely crazy MMT is absolutely crazy but it comes to the point well that you said earlier about you've actually got to just buy equities because of it because if if you are going to head into a massively inflationary environment equities are going to go up you know no matter no matter what you think should happen that's what will happen now okay nobody knows the future and we could. 
we could have a period of inflation and then it could go into deflation and all sorts of other things could happen. There's people out there predicting a massive, you know, collapse from here. And I don't know who's right at this point. But one thing's for certain, the people who have got the power are absolutely determined to push this higher. And I think in the end, that kind of trumps all sorts of analysis. You know, I suppose, the, sorry to interrupt, but I suppose the way you could summarise this this whole debate is, you know, the business of investing or the game, however you want to frame it, it's not about winning the argument, it's about winning the money. Yeah, and I guess that comes down to why I look at charts, because you can frame things in so many different ways. And in the end, it's just, is the price going up or not? And I... And, you can't stand it. It, it. Proper technical analysis is you don't step in front of something even if you don't believe in it and don't understand it. You don't get in the way of it. If it's going up and you don't know why, it's not It's not as important as the fact that it's actually going up and vice versa. So it's a simple rule, but it's it's one of the most effective that I've ever seen in the markets. Well, so so you're, you're touching a trend, trend following thing, aren't you? Because quite yeah. frankly... They say I don't I don't give a shit about why it's going up. But if you if you invest in anything, it's yeah. because you think that whatever it is you're investing in is going to go up when you sell it compared to now. So that by your premise is already there's going to be a trend. Exactly. So that that that's all they do. They just look at price. And then you listen to it's weird how someone can be a value investor and trend follower. But I think they're intellectually I mean, yeah, they're very different, right? But they they're they're both based on very simple one thing we just said there and then the value one is also simple what I love about value is this is a problem I have with Terry like I, I respect Terry Smith how can you not he's done very well but what I don't like is I don't think they are as intellectually honest as they should be so they they have a very sensible investing principle they like good companies been around for a long time high return on invested capital high free cash flow conversion all these other lovely things so you look at that list and go well that all sounds wonderful and where are these companies oh here they are here's one and you go, oh, what's it called? Well, it's a PE ratio is about 25. It's, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, PE rate of 25, like from, historically that. speaking, starting from that price valuation point is usually, uh, you know, subsequent returns are usually poor. And they'll laugh at you and say, yes, well, people have been saying it for the last several years and you're all idiots because that's not worked, blah, blah, blah. And you're thinking, well, maths is math, guys. And then they say, well, value is never going to work again because, look, it hasn't worked for 10 years and it's never coming back and the world's moving to technology. And as you know, technology it tries to book metrics don't work. It's like, okay, so all these points have some grain of truth to them, but maths is maths. So if you're, it's like Tim Price mentioned in metrics earlier on, if you buy a stock today and a PE of five, return on equity of 15 to 20%, paying out dividend yields of 5%, Whoa. you don't need value. To, value doesn't have to work. It just has to, you just own the stock and assuming in, there's no the revaluation. The company just has to stay in business. Yeah, exactly. paying out a dividend like that in an environment like this, in any case, even if it goes nowhere, yeah. that's... That's gold. Well, Paul, is, Paul is, there's, 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 there are lo- there are loads of them, and they're not all in weird stock, weird sectors. They're all over the place over there. Mm. And people say to you, well, yeah, but they, they must be dodgy companies. No, they're not. Or they must be highly cyclical. No, not necessarily. Well, how are you so sure of your your mass? Like, well, how are you so sure of your return on invested capital? Why why do you Terry Smith has got the special golden crystal ball? Like, I mean, it's the same. The same challenge they give you, you can turn back on them and saying, but the thing is, let's say I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, I'm starting from very low valuation. A lot of these companies have net cash in the balance sheet. Some have more cash in the balance sheet than the entire market cap. So I can afford to be wrong, and my downside is quite limited. If you're wrong in the high multiple stuff, yes. or there's a nasty recession or depression, you are fucked, really fucked. And if you look at the Nifty 50 stocks, a lot of those stocks were high-quality, good companies, but it took them 10, 15 years to recover their previous highs, and they had 70% falls. And people think, yes, I know, but Jonathan, on a 25-year time frame, it's like, come on, guys. 
as Tim just said earlier on, man can't keep assets for a few years of dull performance. Are you really going to sit with a, I'm exaggerating, but if, if Terry Smith has a 10-year drawdown, are, are people really going to sit with that? Or will they all start, if value starts becoming emergent again, emerging markets become popular, just like, um, remember, bricks were popular a few years ago. Now, I mean, it seems unbelievable that was ever popular. But when they come back in fashion, you'll see all the same Morningstar ratings chasing the new thing that's growing, Asian value. Wow, they're young. There's a huge demographic tailwind. The macro looks great. The valuations are cheap. They're growing faster. Oh, my God. You can, th- you can see it now. The story looks so compelling. They'll be getting out of this slow-growing Diageo. Like, who cares about Diageo selling a few more bottles of whiskey, growing barely any uh, underlying uh, top-line revenue growth at all, versus some other exciting Asian story? And then, I, I don't know. I mean, if you really can hold on for 25 years and you think your manager has 25-year goggles, great. But I just, I'm doubtful. Yeah, that's a fascinating way to put it, actually. Um, but, and... But that, to that point, you know, something that we've been discussing on this podcast for a very long time is it was exactly that from Tim's perspective. You know, you, you're looking to buy the shares that, as Tim says, quoting Buffett, that you, you'd want to hold even if the market was shut. And a massive correction like the one that we've seen is a case in point because, you know, in theory, if you're buying your shares at a good price in the first place, then you're not going to be worried about you know, um, the correction, because when, when, if the market turns back, it will effectively should be turning back quicker, or at least it's, it has an ability to stay in business and pay out dividends. Well, I think it's, it, I think it's more like, even if I'm wrong, it's not so bad, but if I buy a very high multiple stock and I'm wrong, especially the tech space, because remember the tech space, it is true that as Munger said, they're wonderful. They don't need to reinvest much capital and they can grow. I mean, if you don't have to reinvest capital to grow, that's wonderful. But the flip side of that is if you're wrong, you, you, you have a massive air pocket below you because there's, no, there's, no, there's nothing to back it. There's no capital to back the balance sheet. So you're, what have you got? And to compound that further, that tends to be a very fast changing space. Like who knew? Who, who knew six months ago, Zoom? What the hell is Zoom? Well, now Zoom's there. Now Facebook's trying to catch up and do their own Zoom. I mean, I have no idea how that space looks in 10 years. No idea at all. Not even sure what I'm supposed to look for as a potential challenger. Like my sons are playing computer games now where they've now got... Um, live messaging features inside it, and they can now start tr- trading money inside the apps, inside their games. I mean, who knew to even think that would be a thing? I mean, I guess Neil Stevenson, who wrote um, Snow Crash 20 years ago, had a very interesting book. He, you know, some of these sci-fi guys were very prescient about this stuff. It's like Bitcoin. Bitcoin's a very interesting story. But is it going to be Bitcoin that wins, or will it be Bitcoin 3.0, 4.0? I have no idea which one will win. Or the government so I think he, Well, or the government won. William Shatner, I mean, Shatcoin. What's that? Is, that, what, is that real? Yeah, yeah, it is a thing. Well, it used to be a thing. I don't know if it's still a thing. <laughs> I have to say something on, on the deflation inflation thing. Yeah. And this is, so this is one of my trigger points and I, I maybe I'm just, I need to get over it. But I just, I very much like some of the people like Grant Williams and I think I see some of the real vision stuff and I think that they seem like nice, honest guys. But they do seem to present unilaterally negative, bearish, doomster, gloomster, broken clock kind of people. And I, it does bother me that, like, so now we've had a nasty crash and there's been a recovery and gold's squeaking higher and no, one, no one's really noticed it until recently. And now they're suddenly realizing in most non-dollar currencies, it's hitting all-time highs. So suddenly you, you wheel out the gold guys and they start like cranking up an old doll and they start saying the same words they've been saying every year for the last 10 years. And it's like, well... You're just a gold guy, right? And that's fine. And to be fair, over 20 years, gold has done better than bonds and the S&P, which is amazing. But I think that it's more of a psychological disposition of those people. 
Like I've lived in that world for quite a while. And I think a lot of those guys, they're always looking at the news. They're always looking for a negative headline. They're always looking for something terrible. They're, they're not very optimistic about anything. And I just think it's a more reflection of a personality type than an actual analysis of what's going to happen to gold compared to every other stock I could buy in the whole world. No, nope, I think gold's the answer because the market's about to crash because the Fed's an idiot and the dollar's going to hyperinflation, Weimar, all the same old stuff they've been saying for decades. And I just think people need to be a bit more nuanced. And there's a guy called George Selgin who knows more about Austrian economics than anyone needs to. And he wrote a good article yesterday, I think it was, and he was saying the, the inflation guys are not, not taking into account. There are some massive deflationary variables as well. It's not just the Fed balance sheet. Oh, look, it's higher, therefore gold, therefore inflation. What about the massive deflationary shock? We've had a massive demand collapse. We've had a massive collapse in velocity of money. I think the M2 number has gone down massively. He said, you can't listen to someone talking about inflation without them at least admitting there have been some massive offsetting force in the other direction. And who the fuck knows what's going to happen net-net? I have no idea. I mean, that, 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 that sounds to me a lot, a lot like the, the rationale for, why, for answering the question of why QE didn't trigger inflation. Given the, given the size of the QE program that kicked in 12 years ago and is still going on. Well, I can give you a bit, bit more. It, it's, I can give you cl close, close to the wheel. So I was working as a book. I'll be careful how much I say because I don't know. In my old job, I was in an investment bank on a trading floor. And we were, being, we were dealing with the Fed directly. Mm. So you would pledge, well, there are various programs that you could pledge them your crappest assets deliberately because they wanted you to in return for extremely cheap money. So the problem there was, and this is a bit of a post hoc Austrian rationalization, but I think it's true. The Fed aren't as stupid as the Weimar or the Zimbabwe people. They didn't literally give money to people, although they're starting to do that now. They didn't literally put money into the average guy's hands, which would have been fairer. They, they, they deliberately forced into financial asset prices. And, that is, and if you, people who snigger at Austrians going, well, you're idiots. The CPI didn't move. You're wrong. It's like, well, look at every fucking other financial asset price. It's gone up a load, everything pretty much. I mean, where did that come from? That, that, that came from money. Like it, it, this, it came from somewhere and it was deliberately forced and encouraged by the various programs of the Fed and all its kin all over the world the last 10 years. So it's not like a theory. It's just, it's just true. Of course it did. I mean, they had program. They had an MBS, they had an MBS program. I mean, what, what do you think they were buying with an MBS program? It, it, I don't know why that's not more widely touted by the Austrians as, a, as a, the channel of the inflation we went into vehicles that they didn't expect. They thought it'd be 1970s inflation rerun, and they were frankly wrong about that. Isn't isn't part of this something that again that you said on the last podcast? It would be the response that they. Um, it it will basically be their response. If there's no inflation, they're just going to keep cranking it up until there is. And it's so you're not actually betting on whether there's going to be inflation or deflation. You're just going to be you're kind of betting on them doing more and more and more of this until they get the desired result, which is why I think a lot of people, um, you, you say it's their disposition, and I, I hear what you're saying there, but I, I also think it's, it's, it comes back to what should happen and what is going to happen. Like, you know, if somebody is gaming a system in a way that you think is unfair, there's th the response to that is, well, you think it should correct. But if they're still able to game that system and control it in a way that where price discovery just does not exist, then they're going to be able to do more and more and more of it. And if if we do, we have seen a deflationary hit to the market, but the response is just going to be more more money printing, surely. Yeah. And, I, and I'm not I'm not necessarily I agree. I'm not necessarily a gold bug. I, I I'm just trying to look at it objectively. 
No, I remember Ross and Napier said to me once, which is, it, you know, you, you talk to people, you read lots of stuff over the years, and then little lines people say to you kind of stick in your ear. And I remember Hugh Hendry said something once, he talked about it being a hall of mirrors. Oh, that was a great image because even the gold bugs, and I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that crowd, but, you know, even their gold price, they said, well, you know, we are standing on a mountain and gold is isolated from the entire financial system. It's like, come on, who are you kidding, man? There's ETFs and God knows what links it. Like, the, it's all connected. Like, to think that you found a special separate metaverse where you're hiding it's just not true like even bitcoin it's sort of linked to dollars it's all kind of linked and i think it's not reasonable to think you found a true way to hide from it all so we're in it we're all in it and you have to just admit it and as you say you may not like it but you have to find uh, something you can you can live with i was just thinking i heard a podcast today that was very interesting on um grant williams a few of his guys are the usual uh, gold bug sort of guys but there's one guy said um um, he talked about the current coronavirus as being a bit more like the 1970s shutdown because of all the general strikes. And I, I thought that's a really good example of what maybe we're seeing now because the World War II example is just moronic because the economy is labor, land and capital, and they're actually destroyed in war. And now that's not happening. They're just told to just sit at home and watch Netflix and drink beer. Mm. It's not quite the same. But then I thought, yeah, the 1970s forced, you know, three-day weeks, you know, you're forced to stay at home and everything just stops. And, and you know, that's, that's, really that's, that's quite a good argument for stagflation then. Yeah. So that, that's right. Because our productivity goes to shit as well, which it, it, it is. So I, I think, yeah, I don't want to forecast them because I, I have to admit, guys, I was a bond dealer from, for 20 years and I, I just saw so many charts and trends and explanations and macro that left me very confused. But I, I just decided, and I saw so many super clever people try to predict macro. I just end up thinking, I don't know anyone that can do it well. You mentioned Hugh Hendry, and uh, uh, so that's maybe an example. Because Hugh Hendry's basically retired from the market now, hasn't he? Well, he called China well, completely wrong, didn't he? He said it was going to be massive deflation, and I've heard him say all sorts of stuff. Like I still remember him saying that gold's going to hit $6,000 and then arguing with somebody who was bullish on gold about <laughs> s- s- saying... I remember him saying... Cause I was, because I was doing the financial media at the time, and I was thinking I'd love to go on the show with him because he he was he was like attacking this guy. And I have to be fair, I really liked listening to him because I thought what he was saying he was gives, interesting. He gives, he gives good copy. He does, yeah. Good. But I remember him saying to this guy who's like, "Oh, I think gold's going to hit three thousand. He said, "When? When will it hit three thousand? When? What day? What time? Tell me now." It's like, and he was like, "I was like, Jesus Christ! You, I heard you say gold would hit six thousand. You know, someone could say the same to you." And it's like we're all dealing in uncertainty here. So, um, but yeah, his big thing was the massive deflation in in China, and that was that was so wrong. Um, it was so incredibly wrong. And he travelled out there to see these ghost towns and all that sort of stuff. And it's like. Wow. I mean, I, 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 well, so I remember I argued with him back then about it. Cause I owned the Eclectica fund uh, oh. that he had back in two, cause when he left Odie, cause I'm a fan. Well, I was a fan of Crispin Odie, but I, I, you know, he's sadly blown up 25 years of a track record in, but he's managed to deliver his investors a great depression kind of crash result in his portfolios, trying to protect them from what he thought would be an actual crash. I see. In the economy, so he, yeah, yeah. so the, he's a classic example of one of those guys. You say, well, Jonathan, there are good macro guys. Well, I said, well, who? Well, they said, well, Stan Druckenmiller. Okay, you can name me one or two. And then what about Chris Benodi? Like, okay, but then the last two or three years, they, they, he has completely blown up. 
And you think, well, I think to myself, that's why another value investing thing, I think even if you pick a bad value investor or an average value investor, you, you, your probability of permanent loss is low. You may just do badly. If you're stuck in a bunch of value traps, underperform the indexes, okay, I can survive that. If you go into macro investing, say, I want to put a bit of money with macro investors, okay, good luck with that. So the average macro investor is shit. So you, if you pick badly, it's not only that you'll come out with an average, you'll come out with on average a very bad result. And the probability of picking the needle in the haystack of the one or two guys who are really well is super small. So I just think I'd rather not even try and predict it because I just don't think anyone has a clue. And we've named on this podcast so far a few names of it, like Hugh Hendry is an incredibly clever guy. Yeah. But he, frankly, his, for his returns, he had a word of mandate to do anything. And I sold his uh, fund in 2005 because I just gave up with his flip-flopping. And I think he's more of a, sh- a grandstander, show pony than an actual mm-hmm. an investor. And uh, yeah, and he's, he's now, funny enough, if you look, he's on Instagram again after that Grant Williams thing. Because I couldn't believe when I saw him with his big sunglasses and his cool hat and his big hair going on. I thought, oh my God, what has, what's, what's happened to him? And now he's on Instagram doing all these bizarre photographs of himself. And his, I think, yeah, he's, he's trying to come back, I think. I mean, I don't know why you would trust someone like that with your money, given his record. I guess I guess people could change. But yeah, I mean, he was he is a name. He's like a brand almost. But um, but. I, I, for me, it was just it was the the outrageousness of of his calls. Whenever you make an outrageous call, for some reason that always sticks in people's minds, and a lot of what he said just would stick in in my mind. And he was saying it with such confidence that you know I I was you, you almost get taken in by it. Um, but his actual performance, I was never I was never really aware of whether he was doing well or not. But no. but but anyway, I, I think people can change; they can learn from their mistakes and come back. But. But but why I, I can take your point of being reticent about wanting to invest because there there are other people out there whose records still stand. So um, I'm getting the impression you're a nice, gentle, give someone the benefit of the doubt kind of a guy. No, I'm, I'm more, just no, think, no, no. When I'm, it comes to money, I'm more of a prick than you are. I think. No, no, no. Nice. Actually, it's not that at all. It's not that at all. It's it's that um, that you, you. My view is you never know. You know, he could come back and no, and knock it true. out of the park, and then what would you say then? And it's like so. It, it's a bit like. You know the market cr- collapsed, and everyone was saying, "Well, it's it's going to crash even more." And I was like, "Well, you, you just don't know that." You know, the market might go back up, and and actually might really surprise you and be really strong. And it's like I'm not giving anybody the benefit of the doubt. I'm just saying this is a possibility you can cannot rule out rule out. And that's yeah. that's what markets have taught us time and time again. And we we've got to we've got to learn from that. And people change as they get older. And uh, I think you get a, I think you get a flavour of a person though. So let's say Hugh Hendry opens a fund today. I mm. bet you whether it does well or not is really to do with what happens in the market. So if we have a horrible, shitty deflationary Japanese type outcome in the next five, ten years, he'll kill it. Yeah. But if we have a normal bum muddle along, bumble along, Nick train kind of things, decent quality companies do okay, and yeah, there's a few bumps. He will just slowly bleed away average returns like he did, and he'll keep talking about epic you know, asymmetric trades and complicated options, strategies and all this kind of stuff. It sounds very clever and all the, all the Nassim Taleb fans get all very excited about all this stuff. But frankly, at the end of the day, it's a lot of, a lot of paddling and you're not, really, not making any headway. And then by the way, I'm taking one and 20 fees on top of that. And mm. I'm giving these very entertaining talks and I'm on all these interesting podcasts. But for, frankly, you're sticking with a boring, sensible value guy or sensible UK investment trust, you'd have done far better. Yeah. So it's more, do you see what I mean? I think it's more about the, but you, you touch another point there that's very interesting. I've seen that for sure. The older an investor is, they definitely, they nearly all change. They're nearly never the same as they were when they were younger. I think they get more conservative. They're more more cautious. There are old traders and there are bold traders, but there are no <laughs> old, bold traders. 
Yes. Did you hear what Stanley Druckenmiller, Druckenmiller was saying just as we were going into this year about his investments? And he, no. was, he, was, he, was, he was very bullish and he was right to be bullish to start with. But uh, it, it was just interesting that he was saying that he, he'd had some really good ideas on that point that of what Tim's just said. And he said, but he, he, for some reason, he said he didn't have the, the risk appetite to back them, even though he would have done very well if he'd been right. And uh, he was right, basically, but he just didn't back them in size because his risk appetite had dropped. So I thought that was that was really quite interesting that 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 does happen as you get older. You don't want to take as much risk. Yeah. Um, but um, I think I think it's endemic within the industry, though. I think all the evidence would tend to suggest that the best the best period to own a fund is at the start of the fund. The best period to back someone is probably at the start or towards the start of their career for all of these reasons. It's like, you know. It, it would make sense from a Darwinian perspective, surely, that as people get older in this business, they they get more conservative. So the focus, their focus, effectively shifts from making capital to keeping capital. That ma- that makes an interesting point out of again what Jonathan was saying about trend following funds because they don't change. The the, the parameters mm. are there; they're set, and they they will not change over time. They're designed for the long term. And therefore, you can't tweak them. I suppose you could tweak the amount of risk you take, um, but th- you're not supposed to. But um, one of one of the reasons why I like the the trend following proposition is that I, I think the best funds in that space are not about trying to shoot the lights out in isolation. They are also simultaneously about staying in the game. So their risk management is actually yeah. probably superior to, to the risk management of any other type of fund. Exactly. Because, 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 you, because you it's mean, in their DNA to ensure they can still get up and play, play the yeah. game again tomorrow. You know, they're, 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 the trend followers remind me of the Fat Tony character in Nassim Taleb's books. Yes. They're not trying to be too smart, right? Like I think the options guys, they're, they're, they're an example of the, it's ironic because Nassim Taleb is always going on about this himself. But I think sometimes it's like people talk about how humble they are. It's like, mm. Mm, if someone starts doing that too much, like, I don't think you need to write about how humble you are. If you're a humble guy, you wouldn't need to tell everyone how humble you are. It's sort of, the louder, the louder he talked of his honor, the faster we <laughs> yeah. counted our spoons. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Any investor letters that go on about humility or, or like Guy Spear goes on and on and on about how he's a man and Switzerland and they're hiding in a chalet and listens to no one else's counsel. And he's like, all for his own thinking and doesn't trust anybody. Yeah, you just do. Why don't you write about the investments you've got and why you bought them, what they're valued at, and stop, stop, stop virtue signaling because that, that's it's a, I think it's a marketing trick. Mm. I don't I think I, I have a couple of things on gold that I think I should say because I feel you've been pushing me gold a bit and I feel I need to say something novel or interesting. This is, yeah. this is, a, safe, this is a safe space, John. <laughs> you, you don't need to, you don't need to for the sake of it, but, but let's hear it. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> you're amongst so, friends. So I don't know. Deflation debate. I think it's very intellectually interesting, but I don't think it's very actionable in terms of okay. And what are you going to do? I don't. I don't know. But what I would say is that there are some reasons. If you have a long list of reasons on gold, you, can, you know what they all are. Probably can write them down on your head. But one of them that people don't give a fuck about is existential risk. So let's say you know the, the, Jew, the Jew, the German Jew in 1939. Like you feel like yeah. So you feel like oh, and then there's the pandemic one. So, <laughs> Pandemic's never going to happen. Oh, okay, we just had one, COVID-19. So there's something that's just happened. It's very current. You know how people always remember the last crisis? Yeah. So this has just happened and people have gone, fuck. The, the, thank God, in a way, it wasn't a, like Ebola or something really awful where you, it was mm. killing. Like the Spanish flu, average age of death is 29. Like imagine it was doing that. Yes. And I you, totally you jump up numbers. And it, it, so if, if it was something, God forbid, like that, and we're going to get other viruses coming, hopefully we're prepared. But at least... 
I think in the global population, there's going to be a not small amount of people that think, hmm, maybe I'll just put one or two percent of my pension pot into some gold fund that I would never have before considered. Because you know what? The only thing that seems to do well that I can kind of understand is maybe a bit of gold. So I think there's going to be a new bid on an ongoing basis, higher than it was before because of the pandemic. And then I think also this whole uncertainty thing, the whole general existential uncertainty is going to, you know, the inflation, deflation. I think even the average person in the street who doesn't care about these kind of podcasts is going to be realizing there's a lot of experts. Oxford University has been saying, Imperial College are idiots. Imperial College being at Oxford. So it's not a question of my ex- the experts say. They don't fucking know. They can't agree with each other. And I think there's a certain Hall of Mirrors aspect. And I think a lot of people might think, hmm, that extends their own financial advisor. So I just think very intuitively, there's going to be a, a definite ongoing new bid for a little more gold than normal for the next few years at least just because of those kind of risks not inflation and not and not just and not just that but just to, to 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 extend that that train of thought if that's not mixing too many metaphors um institutions do not own this stuff institutions by and large have zero exposure to gold right now so they those guys would only have to raise that zero to half a percent or one percent for it to make a big difference i i love i love the i don't know if it impresses you and you'd pretty know it, but I mean, people don't understand how little gold there is in the world. But, I mean, you, you, we've seen the movies of Die Hard where you walk in under the Fed building and there's rooms and rooms full of bars of gold. I have been in some of those rooms and they, they're, that's just not, that's not what it is. I've not been to that one, by the way. But it's just not true that there is not that much gold in rooms at that volume, that the, all the gold ever mined in the world since Egyptian times, I think it would take up one or two Olympic swimming pools mm. in, in total on Earth. And of course, most of that's on people's hands around the next, which you're never going to see trading. So the amount of physical gold, it, 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 if you just could visualize it, it's just, just not a lot. So I think there's something about that that's quite, and I think the problem with Bitcoin is I think it's a bit of a solution in want of a problem. And I wonder whether, and of course, tech-minded people love it. But really, what does Bitcoin itself do that gold doesn't? Like, what, I mean, I get the blockchain, but most people aren't worried about the record-keeping reliability of their banks. I mean, how many people go, fucking hell, the bank's got my statement wrong again. I mean, that. I mean, I lived all over the world and I never had any problems like that. I, that's, that's not the problem people worry about. The problem is, I don't trust money if you buy Bitcoin. Well, if you don't trust money, Bitcoin is, yeah, it's very interesting, it's technologically a very, very curious idea. It's romantic, Satoshi, whatever the name is, all very, very exciting and curious. And But I mean, gold, there you are. You can buy gold, a gold-linked credit card. And all the stupid arguments you hear about why you shouldn't have gold and it won't work because you can't give someone a half an ounce of gold over the counter. Well, that's just moronic. You can get gold-backed credit cards that trade in any currency you like. So I just don't know. For me, I don't know what... I'm not against Bitcoin. I just don't think it's... I mean, if you want to own something in that space, just stick with gold. Don't be too clever. But if the banks had actually closed and you weren't able to transact, then how else would you send money? And I'm not... I'm just thinking the other side of it. It, it's, it, it may have increased people's like broader people's desire and also because you're not touching it there's this thing about you know transmission of, of viruses via money which i don't agree with but that it, it doesn't matter what i agree or disagree with it's what what the broader people are, are willing to accept and and the argument unfortunately for electronic money whether it's bitcoin or another has only has only increased if you have a financial collapse and you and the banks are shut for whatever reason then there's no other way to to actually send money or 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 to transact because you can't close it down so th- there are other arguments that come into play other than yes. comparing it directly with gold 
um, which, you know, if I wanted to send money to you right now, I couldn't do that. But if if we, we had a Bitcoin account, then then we could. Now, I, I, I look at it and think, well... Did, did you just say, did I hear you say you're about to send me some Bitcoins? That might be paid for this podcast. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> Thanks. You're being paid in Shatcoin. Oh, yeah. unfortunately, AKA fiat currency. Yeah. Can I can I can I tell you about another exercise? I'm sounding very clever, and I'm not. It's a complete coincidence that I heard, heard this. So Paul Paul Singer of Elliot yesterday uh, wrote a piece, and he talked about other existential events that can happen that we just don't pay attention to. So you know, one of them, an asteroid hit, which I have to say that does seem the most obvious one. I can't believe we don't mm. have some global program to spot asteroids, and that's not science fiction. That is just going to happen at some point, and we just have to hope. It's not the next 50 or 100 years for us, but I don't know why we don't have that. But the or other one was... Or, or that it's made of gold. Oh, God, what would I do? Would I be happy or sad? I don't know. That would be kind of good and bad. <laughs> well, if, it landed on, if it landed on Brussels, I think, you know, that's that's the, the perfect definition. <laughs> Agony and ecstasy. But in, 18, in 1859, there was something called the Carrington event, which yes. I've never heard of. Yes. There was a massive... Oh, wow. It's a sun, sunspot, isn't it? So it's yes. Sort of electromagnetic yeah. Electromagnetic bodies show-offs. Yeah. How did you know about that? Yeah, I, I was, I, I was I, talking I, about we, it. We, we, we stay abreast of things. We've got a yeah. finger on the pulse. Yeah. I eat. Well, geomag- massive geomagnetic storm. So you know yeah. how, I mean, can you imagine that would have been, if that had been the event would have had it would It would have nuked the, electric, think- uh, the uh, electricity grid. Yeah, yeah. So, so basically in amongst that, just to explain what that is, there was a, a, there was a huge ge- geomagnetic storm from the sun, which of course we can't control. And and it. So we can we can pull if we pay enough tax. Well, absolutely yes. There is the EU's got a plan. There's a there's a policy right now to tax people to stop this happening, but there there is a yeah. And so basically, this this storm just fried everything electrical. I mean, it sounds like like something from a film, but if you look at it, look it up, it was, did you say 1859? I think it was, wasn't it? 1859. Yeah. The, I wrote I wrote it down to try to look clever, but I'm not going to pretend I remembered it. Yeah, just, it's, it's the character. Car- but it's going to happen. They're going to happen again, right? And there's the, yeah. the other ones to remember are the, the, the Japan earthquake. I mean, not not. Um, I mean, a proper god awful one, and the whole San Andreas fault. These aren't people. You know, you watch some horror movies. You go, here we well, go. Yellowstone, <laughs> Yellowstone, uh, yeah, Yellowstone. Or else there's the. Sounds like doing a sales pitch on gold, and I'm, I'm not. But <laughs> <laughs> then there's the. Well, okay, what, what's this then? I got one more for you. Let's see if you know what this is. Have you heard of Tom B- Tamboa? What was that? Mm. Oh, they were brilliant in the 80s. I saw them live. <laughs> 1815, Tambor erupted, and it was called The Year Without Summer. Oh, around yeah. the world. oh yeah. my God. Yeah. No, never heard of that. Year but, Without Summer. Because we had Gregory yeah. Wrightstone on, and we were talking about the, the frost fairs on the Thames when, when the ice was freezing, you know, the, sorry, when the Thames froze, yeah. which was absolutely incredible and completely unheard of. But that's, a, that's an amazing one. I've never heard of that. I'm going to have to look that up and get more information. Also, one other one is the Hong Kong flu of 1968-69. I don't know if you heard about that. I, I'd read that there'd been a, it sounds really awful, but it's some, you know how it is when it's them dying, it's not in our backyard, you just aren't, aren't, aren't as aware of it. But it, that was a quite, a quite a high number too, right? It was, it yes. was not Spanish flu, but it was bad. It was really bad. I mean, I'm just surprised at how how, you know, how how many people died it was over a million worldwide and it wasn't i mean of course it's a lot it's 50 years ago which seems like a long time but it's it's not really considering 
and how underprepared we we all have been, given all the kind of warning signs that have been coming out. It just seems to be that we're, like you said earlier, I totally agree with you. I think we're really lucky that this is, you know, it's been bad, but it's not been as bad as as it could have been. To and that, think- to that, to that point, Paul. Sorry to cut in. The I have a, there's a dreadful sense that people are now going to think, well, that pandemic was bad, but at least we've seen the end of it, and. Very few people, I would say, a fraction of a percent of people are thinking, you know what, that, that we could easily have a pandemic of something far more destructive. Uh, because you know, at the moment that we revert to the way things used to be with like international travel and globalization, you know, it, it's going to happen. So if anything, you could argue we're getting off lightly at the moment, but that doesn't mean we're not going to get a recurrence of something that's infinitely, infinitely worse. But at least we'd be better prepared, and I think that that's the main thing. We were. Well, you pre- say you say that, but I mean, let, let's hope so. Let's hope that you know public health England can get its, you know, arsing gear. Yeah, I. I th- did, you I the, did, you, did you see the Panorama show the other night? It was very. Um, I, I refused like to watch a, on general principle. Being. Oh uh, yeah, I, I did. So I didn't. Well, so I'm trying to be a bit more nuanced to all that stuff because I, I never, you know, I, I I know where you're coming from, but it's very unfair. Right? Like all the people advising the show were former Labour Party people. I'm not saying they're wrong with that. Labour Party people. It's but come on. Give it, give us the give us the headlines from it because there are people in other countries that won't be able to watch it, and and so well they were so they were blaming so they're basically blaming the the government as in the Tory government and a few individuals in the government. So all the, all the people you want to hate if you're not a Brexit type of person. So it, you know you taking shots but then they what they didn't explain was you know if, if corbyn had won it doesn't really matter who had won they, that that body that tim just mentioned name forget me the public health body of england whatever it's called their their job is to pre- pre- prepare for pandemics and they this guy on twitter had a great feed cutting and pasting all the relevant sections for their own policy handbooks of what they're supposed to do and they just haven't done it so we can all do this finger pointing thing saying hey, well you're in charge of the government it's like, okay when you take up the government you don't somehow know every fucking manual of every body of all government branches around the entire country within a few months. And that just is not, it's not a realistic hurdle. You should go and ask the people who his ex- explicit job is prepare for pandemics. Yes. What is the plan? The and who? this, who I mean, should have done Matt it? Damon. Well, well, quite. And then Matt Damon was in a movie in 2006. I think it was quite an old movie called Contagion. Contagion. My kids it's very good. Yeah. Very but, good. It, but it's, it's almost like a textbook case of what we've had in social yeah, distancing. Yeah. And it's not yeah, like yeah. a, it's not a benefit of the hindsight. Well, who would have guessed about an Asian bird flu? Are, are you are you kidding? Like it's there's fucking movies about it. We've had numerous examples. Asians are prepared for it. We are not. Can't even get the face masks. And then of course the solution is, well, it's because we don't have enough money. It's like, well, that, that, I don't think it's a money solution. Like, Taiwan is a small government. The 17% of GDP compared to our 40 plus percent GDP. The solution they had was really one of technology and tracking. And you know, hard harder controls of borders. But those aren't really money things. They're just strong, good decisions from the leaders. But I think our, sadly, like with the financial crisis, the lessons learned will be we need a bigger NHS. They're all every single one of them is a saint. And I, I think the doctors and nurses and the actual people working in any a government or private-run hospital around the world are you know are worthy of the greatest respect and thanks at the moment. But I don't think it's because NHS. NHS is the the system of how it's run, that is nothing to, that is not the same thing at all. They're the breaking, still, the breaking know. very bad news is that the police have now started doing prancing music videos. It's, it's desperately sad. Yeah, well, I haven't seen those. I don't know what kind of channels you're subscribing to, Tim, but I'm it's a just, bit worried it's about Twitter. It's just Twitter. It's just Twitter. Mm-hmm. It's just Twitter. <laughs> just Twitter. Yeah. Great stuff. So I th- on, on, that, on that bombshell, I think we should move to media picks. What do you think? Absolutely. Let's go for it. Now, Jonathan, you probably know the drill here. We have to come up with a book, yeah. film or 
or something that you'd like to share or warn people against? Let's go with Tim, so give you a bit of time to think. So the, the film for me is one that's been around for a while, but um, lockdown, you know, life, life under house arrest gives you, a, a, I think, you get a sense of you're allowed, you're more, you're more accommodating to stuff you've seen before. And uh, so the one for me is Argo, which is just uh, a terrific, a terrific film in every, every respect. It's, it may be the perfect film. Um, and uh, that's all I need to say on it. The only, the other one, uh, the other thing I, I just share, which I've only just discovered, but, it, but I really like is, um, is a piece in Medium called, uh, by a guy called Drew McGarry. And the title is, uh, coronavirus made a big mistake invading the greatest goddamn country on earth. And then the subtitle is, if the Rona didn't want a roundhouse kick to the face, it should have stayed the F out of America. And it's just superb. It is absolutely superb. And we'll, I'll put a link, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. I thought you it's, were going to, I thought you were going with the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire film. Oh, does that, okay, so that's why. So I have, I have three, I have three. You greedy bugger. I know, I know. Well, it's, you know, this is, this, everything swells during lockdown. Uh, <laughs> at least that's what I'm, at least that's what I'm telling myself. Um, I'm not happy with the direction this this is going. I said direction. (laughs) Uh, Touche, touche, monsieur. Okay, so uh, the third one is Quiz, which is ITV's recent uh, comedy drama, I think you could almost call it, about the 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 coughing colonel or whoever he was or sergeant or whatever he was in the army this is this is uh, who wants to be a millionaire and the the legal action against the guy who allegedly cheated them uh with michael sheen playing the role of uh, chris tarrant it was on a couple of weeks ago now i think um like everybody else i'm losing losing a sense of time during this this, this mad uh crisis yes. but a quiz quiz which hopefully you can still find on itv player uh is is terrific entertainment it's the first time to be fair i've watched an itv production in years but it's extremely good very 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 recommended wonderful okay i'll watch that jonathan okay so what i'm about to do is clearly uh justifying watching uh clickbait crap tv so you're in a safe place it's okay you can admit it okay so i watched that tiger thing you know the the, the yes. um what's it called again so i watched the tiger and the first episode okay that's interesting and then i i'm not watching it. and friends it just keep going tiger and you watch King. every episode yeah tiger king and you keep watching it and you go oh my god yeah. every episode there's a whole new kind of level of crazy yes. so I, and it, so honestly it was very interesting i know it's clickbait but i watched it so the but now to try to raise the tone and pretend this is all intellectual and then um <laughs> right now is it <laughs> so then my sister said to me um he doesn't she's normal socially well-adjusted person unlike me and she said oh yeah so uh I watched Tiger King and yeah, he's one of those libertarian guys like you, isn't he? I thought, okay, okay. So he's more of a libertine than libertarian, but it is true. A lot of people, especially in England, they're never really taught about it. They do think, oh, you're, that's a libertarian, a gun-toting redneck who just wants to... I said, no, hold on a second. So what I have, my media pick, is a guy called Professor Brian Kaplan. And he's kind of your thinking man's libertarian. And he's written some interesting books. And rather than give you the books... You may not agree with everything he says, but I, I think it's good to just listen to these guys because we get none of this in our media, I don't think. And he's got a podcast recently from the Lions of Liberty, and it's a libertarian case for open borders. And also he talks about uh, education being largely pointless at the third level. It's, it's just a very expensive signaling exercise. And so in your head, automatically, I imagine people go, but, but, but you have to go to school and all the things you're probably thinking, he addresses them front on. And he's very... He's very thoughtful and it does make you think. 
And the other thing about that Tiger show, and this is this is actually quite cool. There's a guy called Jeffrey Miller, who's an evolutionary psychologist, and he he him and two others have this podcast where they go over the Tiger King and all the characters, the three main characters, and discuss what kinds of personality disorders they have. Because I'm very dubious of all that crap. But when you listen to them talk, you realize I'm, I now know quite a bit about psychology that I never knew before. And they and it's just a very interesting way that professional uh, professional psychiatrists will look at these people and they they and what they think a narcissistic personality disorder is. Or, or a sociopath, or you know, potentially a murderer. So I just found those. So have I kind of recovered myself, having dug a hole with Tiger? Did I recover by mentioning a couple of pretentious academics that came out of the back of it, or not really? Definitely both, both on different ends of the spectrum, and they balance themselves out. So I think that's perfect. <laughs> well done. Well, I, I I think we'll just leave it there because that's plenty plenty for us to uh, to pick. Well, through. hang on. What what, what about you? you well. Can't... Well, yeah, you got you got you got Welsh well, out now. Well, I've got I've got always got some that I absolutely love. I mean, there's there's going to be Afterlife Two, which is uh, on Netflix, which I think the first season was great, and I, there's no reason to think that the second one won't be just as good with Ricky Gervais. But what I'm really loving is if you haven't got into it, is Better Call Saul. And oh, it's terrific. We've terrific. just got to the end of season five, and it's just outstanding. So I. I I, they were releasing one episode every week, and we've we've just come to the end of season five. Um, but if you haven't got on that train, all I can say is it's just just amazing. It's a little slow to start, I have to say, if you go back to season one. But I just love everything about it. It's just it just so so well done in every single way. And um, yeah, so if have you seen it, Jonathan? Well, no, because I watched Breaking Bad, but I just thought that Breaking, I thought that Saw one would just be like trying to drag the life out of it and just try to make something out of it's so marginal. Good. But, but if, okay, well, no, I didn't, I, I will definitely look at that. It's so good. It's so clever. It's so cleverly written. And it's just, I, I love everything about it the cinematography, the acting, the storyline, everything is just, for me, outstanding so it's a, it's a golden age we're living through really for uh drama it, 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 it really is you know there's some absolutely fantastic stuff on at the moment it, it, so yeah we're sport for choice well look once again jonathan thank you so much for coming back on the show it's been absolutely brilliant i've really enjoyed it yeah you too and um sorry if i called you a nice gentle sensitive type that wasn't supposed to be an insult i just uh not you tim i meant paul no i don't <laughs> care i'm not bothered by that at all. when 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 do we when do we collectively think that lockdown's finally going to get eased just to finish on that note a, a note of optimism perhaps well it's going to be how it's it, it, the stanford guy said it, this is the hammer and dance strategy right so there's not going to be you know that we don't know what's happening so we lock everything down and so we've done that. And now it looks like, okay, roughly speaking, it's not as awful as we thought. The health system can cope. We're not filling up for the hospitals that we thought. And then the dance is, well, we, we let some people out, maybe some kids at school, maybe some nurses, maybe some doctors. And then this would happen. And then if it gets bad again, they, they pull you back in again. So I think it's, I don't think there's going to be an off and on. It's going to be a little dance where it'll, second wave comes, it's high hopes, third wave, fourth wave. But guys, I think it's with us for two years, unless this um, Oxford vaccine works, which they talked about was potentially... As early as did you read that? It could be as early as September that they could get mm. the vaccines out if if it comes through. Yeah, but I yeah. Uh, I, I mean, what do you think, Tim? Oh, Paul. I I have no strong view, but I just sense that you know, as I'm slowly losing my mind, I'm sure that plenty of other people are slowly losing theirs. So this thing has to, however it's done, this thing has to be, let's say, eased in the in, in fairly short order, because otherwise, I don't think social social order is going to survive. I think, regardless of 
you know, how we feel. It's whether it's the right thing to be doing. And I think it is the right thing to be doing. But the way the government's got to deal with it is if they if they give any sense that uh, they're about to ease it, then people will ease it themselves. So we, and we, what we don't want is a, a mad rush panic back out there. So, um, so I think they're going to be very cautious um, in how they, they word the, the easing of this. But if you look at places that were hit really badly, like Spain and Italy, and they've always said that we were a couple of weeks ahead of them and they're starting to ease, then I don't see why it wouldn't be very, you know, within the next two weeks, if not sooner. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful it will at least start to ease within, within a fortnight. And the markets are definitely excited about something. It's either a ton of money or, or things easing. And I, I th- tend to think it's a co- possibly a combination of the both. Well, I have to say the most, the, 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 that's one headline I don't like at the moment. So we've had this virus and it's all very terrible and all the rest of it. But do you remember a few weeks ago, or maybe a few months ago now, the Brooklyn investor has a blog spot and he said, completely cold. He said, look, let's forget the, the, you know, how expensive the market was. Let's assume the market was normally priced at the beginning of the year and we, we don't get into the hole mm. with it too high and this to start with. He said, if you now say there's a massive, whatever it is, any kind of hit to earnings, if you take the S&P earnings to zero for one year, or let's say to zero for two years, and no one's predicting zero earnings, just massively lower, not zero. Yeah. Even in World War, you didn't have zero earnings. So if you assume the stock market is the net present value of the discounted cash flows forever, that, that knocks off, depending on a few variables, 5 to 7% of stock market value. So in theory, and I know it's theory, you can all snigger, but it, it should only be a 5 to 10% correction of, of, a, of the stock market prices. I mean, you can adjust for like carnival stock should be, of course, smashed. Mm. And maybe doesn't hurt Amazon, but net net for the market as a whole. So it isn't that surprising, just in theory, the market isn't down very much at all. Mm. I mean, I, I think that part taking away what I said at the beginning about the va- overall valuations being a bit high, or rather extreme in some parts of the world. And if you add you all know, the stimulus I mean? on top, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's interesting to hear other other sides of the argument. Mm. This is what I was saying before. Mm. It's um, yeah, that may well be right. Plus a load of stimulus, then the markets are going to go into all time highs. Wouldn't that be strange? No, no, I think it's going to, I think, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what is strange. So we had negative bond rates, then we have negative oil. And I've got a very good friend who won't name who's got this, uh, he runs a few large UK funds and one of them is an income fund. And he's whinging and moaning about the dividend yields, two or 3% and, it's, and he buys very sensible quality ones. And I know you can get high yields, but he's not like that. I said, I can easily see, assuming nothing breaks, that the real yields or nominal yields on dividend paying equities could trend down to 1% or, or zero. I mean, if bond yields stay here for long enough, people will be forced to buy any income-producing asset. And I could see a crazy world where dividend yields go down to nearly zero because, hey, they're cheap compared to bonds and they yeah. grow. Blimey. I mean, I know, I know I'm not saying this is correct or right. I'm just saying if you distort the system long enough, yes. you're gonna, it, it's like, it's like a, you're willing it on. You're willing on more and more ridiculous outcomes. Well, you can't rule anything out, that's for sure. And it's an interesting thought experiment, and may, let's see. So hopefully we'll have, you, we'll have you back on soon, and we can, we can discuss where we are then. Right then. Yeah. Well, I'll be in the pub. <laughs> make, it up, make it up for lost time. How many how many million barrels of beer were there going to go to waste? I mean, that's such a such a shame, isn't it? Really, if nothing else. Did you see that headline? I didn't. The one the one that caught me was the. Uh, I'll see if I can find it just very very briefly while we're still on. Um, hold on. Yeah, here we go. It's uh, from the FT earlier this week. Uh, 
U.S. restaurant closings spur farmers to destroy food. And I'll read that very, very briefly, and I don't really want to end on a negative note, but I think this looks probably inevitable. Katie and Jim DeGange, who run a dairy farm in Wisconsin, have spent the last several weeks dumping as much as 20,000 gallons of milk a day. Oh, no. In California, Jack Vessia, lettuce and leafy green farmer, and this is heartbreaking, has destroyed 350 acres of his crop by plowing his tractor through unharvested fields. The two farms are almost 2,000 miles apart, but both have become examples of the damage done by coronavirus to the complex supply chains that bring food from farms to tables in the U.S. And this is like something out of the Depre- Great Depression. Farmers you know, destroy, on the, on, farmers on that destroying note, their products as Americans line up by the thousands outside food banks. Yeah, I don't think people understand the. It's, that's interesting. Because I, I don't think people have thought about, thought about the, um, the break in the food system. I mean, I noticed overnight that Trump has ordered the meatpacking firms to stay to stay open. Yeah, he's not all bad, eh? <laughs> was that was that the positive? Was that the positive note? To yeah, you go. Yes. That's, a, that's a superb. Brilliant. We'll take it. We'll take it. Feet. We'll take what it. He's not all bad. Fantastic. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank thank you so much. Okay. See you. Until Bye-bye. next time. Bye. Well, that was superb. Thank you, Tim. And thank you, uh, thank you so much for listening. And we will catch you next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.